Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. This week on the Nerdcast, Trump's evangelical Christian base has ignored a lot of his behavior until now, and we're looking at one new thing that's causing problems for Trump, blasphemy. Plus, Iowa, the first caucus state, shaping up to be a big test for the Democratic 2020 presidential candidates. Our reporters Chris Catalago and Natasha Karecki and our senior politics editor Charlie Matessian were on the ground and will join us to share what they saw at the Iowa State Fair recently. As always, we're taping this on Thursday. Today, that's August 15th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. White House reporter Gabby Orr is joining us. Hello, Gabby. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, Gabby, you wrote a piece that got a ton of attention this week. President Trump had a rally a few weeks ago, and it made headlines. I think everyone will recognize the reason why as we as we play the, the clip right here. Now, Gabby, that was July 17th in North Carolina when Trump went after Somali-born Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar, an American citizen. But some Trump supporters were more fixated on something completely different that happened during the rally. That's right. One of the things that a lot of religious supporters of the president, evangelicals who were at that rally or were watching from their living rooms, uh, took issue with was the language that the president used, particularly words that Christians tend to veer away from, things that they find irreverent, inappropriate, um, at odds with their own beliefs. And uh, the interesting what lead into this story is, is a West Virginia state senator who I happened to speak with just about the rally. Uh, who mentioned that he was out and about running errands and he got three phone calls from constituents in his district who were calling to complain about the president using the GD word, which is what uh, he described it as. And they were distraught in his words. They were concerned about the president's language. And so he felt compelled at that point to go watch the rally for himself. And this is a a man who uh, is of faith, who said that he is a conservative Democrat who supports the president. But even he was taken aback by the language that was used and felt so compelled uh, that he wrote a letter to the White House expressing concern about the president's language and urging him to uh, behave more appropriately when he is, you know, has the presidential seal on a podium and is using words like this. And if you don't support me, you're going to be so goddamn poor, you're not going to believe it. They'll be hit so goddamn hard, sir. They will be... Thank you. Gabby, the thing that struck me about this, as, as I was reading through your story, I was thinking, it's like, oh, uh, it, it took me a second, then I did a double take and backed up to the beginning, and I realized the rally wasn't even in West Virginia. It wasn't nope. even <laughs> in this state senator's district. Right. It was it was in North Carolina, but this local official was still kind of gathering reaction from 
the grassroots, I guess. From, Absolutely. From kind of random supporters out, out and about mm-hmm. in the country. And you have to remember, I mean, this the district that he represents, in, in his own words, is a Bible-believing, God-fearing part of the country. And so uh, he, he said that it wasn't necessarily surprising to have constituents who took issue with that language, but to have so many reach out to him to the point where even he agreed and, and wrote to the White House uh, directly to the president. That was just something that, you know, I, I took and spoke to other evangelical leaders about and said, is is this an issue that evangelicals actually care about? Because there is this constant question of, is there anything this president can do to turn off evangelicals to the point where they stay home? They don't feel like they can support him in 2020. And so far, the answer has been not really. It's, it's difficult to find anything that they would take issue with. And I'm not saying that any, any evangelical voter who supported the president in 2016 is going to sit home because he said the word goddamn. But uh, are there some who are reconsidering their support? There are. And are there some who have maybe taken their children to Trump rallies before and might not do that again? Uh, there, there are certainly a, a group of, of evangelical voters, religious supporters of this president who are just concerned and, and growing tired with the type of language that he engages in. And this, we've talked about this before, I think. And certainly we talked about it recently with our colleague, Tim Alberta, who, who, whose recent book kind of revolves a lot around this paradox of the Trump presidency, that his strongest supporters uh, are, uh, are evangelical Christians. And this, this is a president who's been uh, divorced twice, who's uh, ad- admitted paying off. Accused uh, of extramarital affairs, sexual assault. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to sort of get in the mind of an, of an evangelical voter, mostly white evangelicals, to be clear, who stand by this president, who have supported him at every point. And it really comes down to the policy. And I get into this a little bit in the article, but things like his judicial nominations, appointing pro-life judges um, to, to the federal and, and appellate courts, uh, protecting Israel, uh, advancing our aid to Israel, uh, moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. These are all things that evangelicals are sort of willing to ignore the character flaws in order to continue to advance uh, those items. And now, Gabby, there's a quote in your story from Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, who you describe as one of Trump's earliest supporters among religious leaders, the son of uh, the late Jerry Falwell, uh, president of Liberty University. And here's what he said. He said, we all wish he would be a little more careful with his language, but it's not anything that's a deal breaker. And it's not something we're going to get morally indignant about. Now, there are a lot of people out there who have been the targets of moral indignation from folks like Falwell uh, for for language that, you know, potentially less offensive than than, uh, some people found this in, in the past. And yet, here we are. Right. Just just a few generations ago, uh, evangelical leaders like Billy Graham were taking issue with sort of the coarse and vulgar language that was used by President Nixon and President Johnson. So it's not as though uh, religious leaders, conservative Christians haven't before reacted to the type of language that President Trump is now using and took issue with it. And yet here we are where you have a current uh religious individual who is extremely close to this White House, close to members of this cabinet, saying, well, we wish the president wouldn't use this language, but it's not something we're going to criticize him for. It's not something that we're going to uh, get upset about. And yet that is exactly what's happening. Just a few paragraphs before that, you have a quote from from Senator Hardesty, the West Virginia uh, lawmaker, who said that he felt as though there were people who would, or there were people who would come up to him and say, you know, if the president doesn't tone down his rhetoric, I might just stay 
stay home this time. And it it was so compelling that, that Hardesty wrote to the president and said, look, you need to reconsider what you're saying and, quote, reflect on your comments and never utter those words again. The other thing that occurred to me, particularly with the quote that you just, just mentioned from Hardesty, um, reflecting on how fragile the the president's victory in 2016 was. I think that, you know, the combined margin of victory across those three Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin, three longtime Democratic states in the Midwest that he flipped by a combined less than 80,000 votes. And so when we talk about groups like working class whites or or evangelical Christians or whatever, you know, even a one or two percent drop in support among groups like that could be could be fatal mm-hmm. for the president's political career. Yeah. And, and if you've seen um, the tre- the way that his support among white evangelicals has trended back since 2017, it, it actually has uh, sloped downward. Uh, he, he still maintains an extremely high level of support among that demographic, but it has trended downward. So there are uh, fewer evangelicals, white evangelicals who support him currently than there were in 2017. And, and I can tell you, I was at a dinner last night with with officials who work for America First, the the outside pack uh, that primarily supports this president, and they were saying that a, a great deal of their research heading into 2020, uh, with in terms of voter registration efforts and the way that they're looking at swing voters in each state, has to do with the evangelical voting bloc. They're paying very close attention because they don't want to take that for granted, and they're also aware that there are things that this president has done. Uh, maybe it's his constant tweeting, maybe it's his immigration policy that might rub some people within that demographic the wrong way. On the flip side, I, th- I think about and and something that has redounded to both parties' benefits in, in the past when incumbents are running for re-election. By the time you get a nominee on the other side, in this case on the Democratic side, it's possible that the just the very contrast between President Trump and whoever the Democratic nominee is, who is going to be pro-abortion rights, mm-hmm. who is going to be uh, pro-same-sex marriage, I mean, we can go down, down the list, right? Uh, that that very contrast might might be enough to to quell concerns that, that many voters might have. Absolutely. That's one of the things that you saw happen in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. I mean, a lot of people um, not just didn't like her and didn't feel like they could vote for her, but didn't like the policies that she stood for. And while they admitted that this president had numerous character flaws, felt as though he would advance the agenda that was most aligned with their ideological and, and theological beliefs. And in addition to that, I mean, one other thing that's been pointed out pretty routinely, I know Politico did a fantastic article about the ways that Democratic 2020 candidates have tried to reach out to different groups of faith. Um, That's been a a notable criticism among the evangelical community is that they don't feel like there's a Democratic candidate who is not hostile to Christians in this country. And so uh, even if they are reluctant to support this president to embrace his policies, at the very least, you can expect that white evangelicals will always lean toward uh, President Trump in, in, in a 2020 election. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to have to have you back to check in on this story again a few times over the next <laughs> y- year and a half because I think it's, it's going to be interesting. We're seeing. all going to have to watch the president's rallies to see if he actually does change his language. <laughs> I have a feeling it won't. Right. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Nerdcast will be right back for segment two after this short message. Worldly from Vox is your guide to news from all around the world. Every Thursday, senior writer Zach Beecham, senior foreign editor Jennifer Williams, and defense writer Alex Ward give you the history and context you need to make sense of global stories. If you want to understand news out of Iran, Syria, North Korea, Russia, China, Brazil, Worldly is the podcast for you. 
And they always save a segment of the podcast for bright, fresh international stories of Fruit Heist in Spain or Iceland's quest to build a better soccer team. Subscribe to Worldly from Vox on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. All right, welcome back, listeners. Next up, This Week in Iowa. Uh, A lot of candidates descending there in the past few weeks, especially for the Iowa State Fair, that storied political event. And we're going to talk about kind of the renewed uh, realization or at least the renewed intensity around the idea that, you know, if candidates don't do well in Iowa, that first caucus state, uh, that's going to cause a lot of problems, going to end some presidential campaigns uh, prematurely at the beginning of next year. So uh, Politico and national political reporters Chris Catalago and Natasha Karecki were on hand at the state fair to see it all uh, in recent weeks. Hi, Natasha. Hey, Scott. And hey, Chris. Hey. And, of course, uh, Politico's senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian, is back with us this week in the studio. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. All right. So I want to hear all about your trips to Iowa. Chris, you were on Kamala Harris's bus tour, right? How was that? It was very interesting to see the reaction to her. You know, this was by far the longest amount of time she's spent in Iowa so far. Um, She's been spending a lot of time in South Carolina, um, certainly less in, in New Hampshire. But this was really her sort of... Uh, coming out party in Iowa. Um, uh, interesting to see sort of the crowd reaction, what people wanted to uh, to hear from her. And um, it was a chance for her to kind of do a full blitz. She did 22 media interviews on her bus, um, a lot of local press, a, a lot of sort of handshaking and, and ducking into small groups. Um, some of it seemed to uh, to pay off fairly quickly. She got uh, some big in- endorsements from the uh, uh, Asian and Latino caucus in the state, from uh, Sue Dorsky um, and her husband, uh, very influential Democrats, former state party chair and uh, former legislator there. So um, we did see some uh, sense from folks that they were interested in her, uh, whether she can uh, close the deal, convert some of the uh, Biden and Warren supporters into her corner, I think is really to be determined. And we're, let's come back to that in a second. But uh, Natasha, I also saw you, you, you posted a, a, about a, a confrontation from the, the Iowa State Fair on, on Twitter. It looked pretty wild. Can you tell us a little bit about it? How was it to be on the ground there? Um, well, it was pretty intense. That was the first day of the fair on, on Thursday. And that's when, when Biden spoke. And um, on, the, on the ground and, and then in that video, it's just, you know, when you're walking with these candidates, it's like it's really intense. It's it's sweaty, it's crowded, you're struggling to hear, and you're all kind of moving in this big mass of, like, the candidate in the middle and, you know, all the reporters struggling to get into here. And then as you struggle to hear, like, the cameras are all hitting each other. So it can be a little bruising. And here's the clip in question that Natasha's talking about. Bulges. He said specifically yeah, that specifically. he was condemning them. He no, said, he did he not. Said, he said he walked out and he said, let's get this straight. He said there were very fine people in both groups. They're chanting anti-Semitic slogans, carrying flags. Are you aware of that? Okay. But that, that was a Breitbart um, editor at large. Um, and he, um, in that video, and he just uh, went at Biden and, and challenged some of the rhetoric that Biden has been saying about Trump. Charlottesville um, and what, you know, Trump's comment that there are very fine people on both sides. Uh, so, that, so, you know, that's one thing about the fair is that you can, anyone can pretty much, if you can shove your way through the crowd, you know, address a candidate. And even when you're off the soapbox, um, he, that was after he stepped down from the soapbox. Um, so th- there's just things like that. You just don't know what's going to happen. There's more impromptu moments with the candidates. And that's why it's great for reporters to be there. Charlie, I think that the thing that, that uh, occurs to me as we're 
talking through this and, and, and you know, the state fair in general and this kind of ramping up of political events in Iowa um, in the back half of the year here is that, you know, both of these these candidates that we brought up so far, Harris and, and, and Biden, um, have, you know, in terms of kind of gaming out the political strategy of the um, uh, of of the primaries, it's largely focused around Biden's strength and Harris's potential strength, and, and focus in South Carolina, which is a little later in the calendar. But I think, and and it seems like this happens in a lot of presidential cycles that as you get closer, the realization really sets in that you need to do well in that first state if you want to survive long enough to you know to to get to one of those strongholds that comes later. Right, and and they both I think have uh, different hurdles. Uh, when you, when you think of Biden, I mean, the last time out, the last time he was uh, running in. In, in uh, Iowa, he got plastered. He got crushed. Spent a lot of time there, and you know, uh, had just a terrible performance. And so, I mean, for for the front runner, he has to prove that he actually has an organization there that he can actually win votes there. And uh, I think he also has to get out on the stump and dispel some of the notions that are out there about him, about his energy level, and whether he's being you know hidden behind a sort of a very light schedule. Uh, so. That that's his mandate, and then Kamala on, on the other side has a, a very different uh, uh, task at hand. I think in her case, I think they probably and Chris, you know this better than me, but I mean, my impression was uh, now. First of all, the Iowans are very Iowan Americans are very sensitive to the idea that they're going to be blown off or bypassed, and this happens every four years. There's a candidate or candidates plural that think they're going to blow off one of the early states because they think they'll lose badly there and they want to concentrate their resources somewhere else, and then it comes back to to, to bite them. Uh, I think in uh, her case, maybe, you know, they didn't say this publicly, but it sure looked to me like they were going to try and skip Iowa. But it looks like now they've sort of redoubled their efforts there uh, because of, in part, because of the traction she's gotten in the polls, because of the performance she had in the uh, debate. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not out of the out of the question that she might be might get one of those tickets out of Iowa. And I think it's probably a smart play. Yeah, I think that there was no question um, that they needed to really re-engage there. Interesting, we did not hear any Iowans come up or bring up with us that they thought she would be skipping it. So maybe she kind of engaged right at the right moment where she could avoid some of that. She certainly has been hearing that in the state of New Hampshire. Um, that's been something she's heard every time she's gone back there. So it could have been a, a, a play that happened at the right time. I'm curious from you guys and, and from Natasha uh, whether... Um, you know who who has the higher stakes there? Is it Biden? Is 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 it Biden because of the electability argument? Does he really need to finish first there, um, or is it Harris coming in? You know, second or third, uh, avoiding you know kind of getting knocked out of the running. Natasha, you've probably spent more more time in Iowa than anyone here. What what do you think about that question? I think you know. Like we always say with Iowa, it's an expectations game. So what what will the expectations be in February? You know, is is Biden still leading in the polls? Is he not? Um, if, if he's plummeting in the polls at that point, but then he is second in Iowa, you know, um, things can change. But, you know, as it stands now, I, you know, I, I think obviously all the lower tier people, like that's their last gasp is trying to get out of Iowa. But I, I think Biden needs it. I mean, I think it's his, his big test. Um, there's so much... You know, there's so much narrative about the fragility of of Biden um, and, you know, these recent gaffes that he made in Iowa um, and elsewhere, um, his age and so forth. Um, If he gets a stamp of approval from the first early state, I mean, it just it it will boost him and give him momentum that that he really needs. Um, And I think to a lesser extent, uh, Warren and Harris, I mean, now Warren, I think 
because she, she she was kind of, you know, below the radar screen. So she wasn't a target for a while. Now that she is, you know, really considered a front runner, she's, she's leading in some of these polls, she's raising a ton of money. Um, she's just known to have really good organizations. She's becoming a little bit more of a target. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if she can weather that, how well she can weather that, if she continues this whole thing that she calls a movement um, and, and, and how that plays out. But right now she has, you know, without question, I would say the best organization in, in Iowa. I think if you assume there are four tickets out of Iowa, you know, the way some people talk. It's kind uh, of been the traditional, right? Yeah. Uh, so four tickets out. I think that Biden is dead if he is in fourth place in, in Iowa. I don't think he gets a ticket out. I mean, he, maybe he goes on to New Hampshire, but like that campaign's effectively over. But Harris can live on. Because the expectations are so different, as Natasha w- was talking about. I mean, there is no excuse for Joe Biden to come in fourth in Iowa, and it will show the weakness. It will reveal the campaign that you know all the the that is sometimes speculated as you know sort of uh, house of cards to begin with. You know, it will re- it will validate all of the criticisms of his campaign if he comes in fourth. Whereas Kamala Harris, if she comes in fourth, there will be at least. Uh, some alternate theories about why she can live on, meaning it is the, you know, it's a super white state. You know, she's an African-American candidate. She hasn't been on the national team as long as Biden. Um, she didn't have as big of a, an organization as Biden. I mean, there are lots of reasons why she might come in fourth, but there are very few reasons other than his campaign is hemorrhaging for him to come in fourth. Well, and Charlie, you just made a really interesting point there. I think you know, part of part of what's interesting about the the way kind of Iowa and the expectations set up is, is that the these candidates that are looking for a, a big boost and in, in kind of you know proving they can win and stuff, and I'm thinking particularly about Kamala Harris, but also you know Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. Um, these are people who you know a a, a win or a good showing in, in Iowa, which as Charlie said is very white, could provide them an opening to go challenge Biden for African American support in in South Carolina and and other Super Tuesday states later on, along the lines of what Obama did to Hillary Clinton in 2007 2008. It was really once he he won Iowa and showed well there that he really started to to wrest the black vote out of of Clinton's hands. And that's obviously that's a big part of Harris's strategy, but it's a big part of everyone's strategy. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has made huge uh, overtures to to black activists and it really hasn't shown up in in polling yet, but you can kind of see the groundwork being laid there for if she's able to win, you know, a, a place like Iowa being able to claim like, hey, like I'm I'm for real and and having put in work early to to be able to to take advantage of that moment. Yeah, the one thing that Harris and uh, Warren have in common, despite having uh, sort of different paths and different uh, constituencies that they're courting in a lot of ways, um, is that they both you know aren't really going to be able to sort of shatter this electability question until they win, right? And 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 that seems like something that Biden has been able to hang on to, whether it's with African-American voters or with, with voters in general. And I think that both of them are relying on a good showing, Harris in particular, among African-Americans to, um, to show that she can win with this, you know, in this largely white state of, of Iowa, similar to what Obama did. The, the one takeaway I have between the two of them and Biden and that really kind of struck me in this Iowa trip is that Warren um, is really winning winning over a lot of hearts there. She Her, her message... She's managed to make it a, a very optimistic one. She's gotten a lot of people energized. Um, Harris's is much more, I'm going to take the case against Trump, and I have this sort of 
um, uh, you know, pocketbook agenda. But I think one thing she's going to really have to find over the next few months there is this sort of inspirational message. And I think that that's largely true for Biden, too. I think I think that um, that is somewhere where they're vulnerable to warrant. Mm, that's interesting. Natasha, your, your big takeaway from from your, your recent uh, observations in Iowa? You know, people who stood out uh, were you know, Pete Buttigieg. Um, we, should, we haven't mentioned him yet. Um, it, it, people really like him. But <laughs> when Warren took the stage, I mean, you could just feel the floor shaking. I mean, it, it was it was this real, uh, genuine enthusiasm for her. Um, so, you know, so, so there's certain things like that you can't really, you know, you can read whatever you want on paper, look at the polls. There's something that you have to be on the ground to really feel that. And, and I felt you could feel that that day. Um, I mean, Booker had a great performance. Uh, you know, Harris did well. Biden did fine. But but Warren, you can just uh, you could really feel the energy there. And. And then she lit it up with uh, going straight into hospital mergers. <laughs> Charlie? Right, but they didn't care. <laughs> Charlie, uh, last thought? My takeaway? Uh, fried Twinkies are actually very good. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're highly underrated. I've never actually had Best one. Best corn dog I've ever had. I'll tell you, between the food and some of the... Like, no one names a political event like like Iowa, the, the Wing Ding dinner. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty uh, exciting. All right. <laughs> We're uh, obviously first caucus state. No one no one listening needs us to, to underline how important it is, but it is interesting to see some of the maneuvering going on there and the candidates really uh, kind of zeroing in on this as, as we get closer and closer and closer to 2020. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Of course, anytime. Natasha, thanks for hopping on the phone. Thank you. And Charlie, thank you as always. Thank you, Scott. And as always, a big thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Our producer this week is Jenny Ahmed. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks. We'll talk to you again next week.